Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with audio ecologist Gordon Hempton. There is a shorter produced version of this, which includes some of the remarkable soundscapes he captures. And you can find that wherever you found this podcast. Ooh. Hi, it's Krista are we connected? Tippett. I think we are. All right, Krista. <laughs> okay, we're just getting set up here. Okay. Brought along some orange juice, so I'm going to have a swig. Okay. Great. Mm-hmm. So you're in Minneapolis? Yes. And and where are you? Well, I'm in a quiet place here in Seattle. <laughs> okay. Yeah. In fact, <laughs> oh, boy, it was a couple of noisy hours just getting here. Yeah. And now I'm, I'm, I was hoping that I'd be able to sneak in this room early just to... Heal from that big banging outside. But in any case, I'm ready. We actually have some construction going on here. Uh, and we're wondering, with the sensitivity of your listening ability, whether you might even hear it across these thousands of miles. <laughs> well, I would wish, but I'm 58 years old. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm really glad to have you at the other end of the uh, microphone. Have you done one of these um, ISDN interviews before? Yes, I have. Okay. I I find it very um, wonderful and intimate to just have the the voice to work with. Mm-hmm. So let me yeah, just... Now, I have a, I have okay, a quick question good. for you. I uh, s- sent a link to Nancy just this morning before I left with some audio files, which, since we have a 90-minute session today, mm-hmm. is that correct? Yeah, we'll, we'll probably go 75 or so, but we like to give ourselves room in case we... Okay. So it, it does uh, give us an opportunity for me to refer to a particular sound file that yes. might uh, illustrate my point, and perhaps Absolutely. we could even listen to it together so I can get your impression. <laughs> yeah, no, we, we definitely can, and... Um, and if we want to listen together, we can, but you can also assume that we can, you know, the the art and craft of radio um, will serve uh, the fullness of what you do and what you care about because we can talk about it and, and we're also going to be able to bring it in for our listeners to hear. So that's really exciting about this. Yes. Well, yeah. well thank you. I'm really looking forward to this. This is the first time that... So many minutes have been devoted to the subject, and yeah, good. silence especially needs some breathing space. Yeah. One thing people often say about our show is uh, people in radio, <laughs> and they say it with a little bit of trepidation, there's a lot of silence in your show, <laughs> which mm. in radio is measured in, you know, nanoseconds, because um, it's, it's kind of a, it's a forbidden thing. Dead air, right? But you'll it's... understand that dead air isn't ever really dead. <laughs> oh yeah, it's never really dead. But you know, you wait longer than three seconds with silence, and you know your listeners are probably pounding on top of their dashboard just trying to make sure their radio is still working. Yeah. 
Yeah, or the or the engineers in the building are doing that. It's uh, yeah. Well, anyway, we'll get this good. Okay, so let's let's start at the beginning, and maybe we will circle back around to why it, it makes all of us nervous when too much silence enters. Oh sure. Um, where did you grow up? I didn't see that anywhere. Well, that's assuming that I did grow up. Okay. Well, I'm always, or where where I, were you as a child? Yeah. Let's say it that way. <laughs> as, as a child, I was a member of a military family. Started out in Southern California, then went on to Hawaii, then back to California before going to Washington D.C., Seattle, San Francisco, and then I can say about a dozen other places hmm. before I got out of high school. So by the time it was uh, my chance to go to college, that's when I decided I'd fill the space in between by going to the Midwest, University of Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't really, there's not really a place where you were, which felt like a center of gravity, even even with all that moving. Oh, there definitely is, mm. and that is Hawaii. Okay. Okay. Yeah, the place of Hawaii, a place that I've recorded many times in my life, is uh, the first experience I had was when I was six weeks old. And mm. then we moved away when I was four years old. And I did not revisit the location until 1990, when all of a sudden I discovered that I had all these primal impressions of what it's like to be home in nature. Hmm. And and that was and that was associated for you with Hawaii. Yeah, Hawaii. Mm-hmm. The smells of Hawaii, mm. the sounds of the surf, of all the places that I've recorded in Hawaii and I've recorded all the islands in Hawaii for an exhibit on endangered species for the Smithsonian Institution because Hawaii, unfortunately, has the title of uh, highest density of endangered species. Mm. But I found the sound that I enjoyed most was the sound of the silence in the volcano. (laughs) It is perhaps the quietest place. The measurement of decibels actually goes into the the minus point, but there still is a sense of presence of hmm. where you are. Hmm. Hmm. And then once you get over the rim of the volcano, you begin to pick up what I call the mantra of the islands, and that's the distant beating of that drum called the Pacific Ocean. Was there a, a spiritual tradition or religious tradition in your childhood, in your upbringing? Well, I was raised Episcopalian. And so that meant that every Sunday morning I woke up and had to take that dirty pair of shoes that I always wore to school and then put a fresh layer of shoe polish on them and then go to church. But (laughs) I would have to say that because I was just a young child, that sitting in church... I I really had a hard time listening to the words, but I did enjoy listening to one thing, which is that everybody was coming together for a single purpose, and I particularly enjoyed the singing. Mm -hmm. So again, it was an an oral experience. And for yourself, I know that religion 
and study of spirituality is is a very important part of your life. It is, yeah. Yeah, and I I almost always start my interviews, um, even if I'm talking to people who are not religious uh, at all, um, mm-hmm. to ask about that in their childhood, because I think we're all formed by that. However, you know, even if we if we're formed by how we define ourselves in contrast to it, it's a really, it's still a jumping off point for all of us. It is a jumping off point, mm-hmm. and I have jumped off. I really can't say that I'm religious today, although I am spiritual. I, I don't go to church that's inside of buildings, but I do go to church that's outside. And my my favorite church of all is what I call the Cathedral of the Ho Rainforest at Olympic National Park. It's a place that I'm trying to save through the One Square Inch of Silence Foundation. Yeah. It has the world's tallest trees over 300 feet high. And it's there that the least amount of noise pollution intrudes of anywhere else in the United States. And I'm, I'm, we're going to go back there. We're, we're going to spend some time there, I mean, in our conversation. Oh, I, okay. I, I am also, though, very intrigued when I look at your story that you, you headed in this direction of becoming an acoustic ecologist, which... You know, on its own, those two words, I think, are so intriguing and lovely. Mm-hmm. Um, but you mm-hmm. started doing that when you were living in a city in Seattle. Is that right? Well, I did. Actually, acoustic ecology didn't even exist as a field. Uh, my my goal, really, well, I, I have to tell you, Trista, that I grew up thinking that I was a listener and even when I was in graduate school, I thought that I was a listener because I was getting good grades. I appreciated music. I was a performer myself. Except on my way to graduate school one time, I, I simply uh, pulled over, making the long drive from Seattle, Washington to Madison, Wisconsin, pulled over in a field to get some rest, and a thunderstorm rolled over me. And while I lay there and the thunder echoed through the valley, and I could hear the crickets. I just simply took it all in. Simply took it all in. And it's then I realized that I, I had a whole wrong impression of what it meant to actually listen. I thought that listening meant focusing my attention on what was important even before I had heard it and screening out everything that was unimportant even before I had heard it. In other words, I had been paying a lot of attention to people, but I really hadn't been paying a lot of attention to what is all around me. And it was on that day that I really discovered what it means to be alive as another animal in a natural place. And that that changed my life. I had one question, and that was, how could I be 27 years old and have never truly listened before? I, I, I knew, for me, I was living life incredibly wrong. So I abandoned all my plans. I dropped out of graduate school. I moved to Seattle, took my day job as a, as a bike messenger, and only had one goal, and that was to become a better listener. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. And that was, I, at that point, I didn't know I was going to become an acoustic ecologist. But as I began to simply open up to all things in life, not just what I thought was important, but just all things in life, I heard messages. You know, I'm very aware in the kind of conversation I have with all kinds of people that they're... Oh, do you hear that? Sound like everything went away. No. Gordon, are you there? I am. Okay. <laughs> all right. <laughs> there was a bad silence there. Um, um, <laughs> true, true dead air. Um, Scary, The connection severed. Silence. Yes. Um, right. So, you know, there's discovery that's about or there's growth that comes from discovering something new and there's growth for human beings that comes from rediscovering something essential that and elemental that we forgot mm-hmm. and it feels mm-hmm. to me right. as i immerse in what you do that that's you know that's huge about what you're doing i mean what i what i'm reminded of um is you know the the ways you talk about that sound in fact connects everything that our ears work all the time, <laughs> which is why our alarm clocks work, our bodies sleep, right, but our ears right, stay right. awake. And that, as you say, as human beings and as creatures, like other creatures, from the beginning of time, sound was a huge, huge was a central way oh, to sound, make, our, make sound, our way through the world. Sound is incredibly important. I, I'm always floored when I hear over and over again from our modern culture how important vision is. Mm-hmm. Okay, that that okay. Sound is kind of important, but boy, vision is. We're very picture centric, aren't we? Oh well, of course we're pictured centered because there's so much noise pollution in our modern world today that if we were become auditory. But I want to go back for a moment, Mm -hmm. and let's just forget about the modern world, and let's just look at evolution. Some animal species are actually blind. Mm The ability to see is not essential for survival. There are blind animal species in the back of the caves and the bottom of the oceans and stuff like this. But sound is so important that every higher vertebrate species has the ability to hear. And sight is such an affordable luxury that (laughs) eyelids evolved. We can close our eyes. Okay, that's enough of that. I'm just going to close my eyes and take a break. Mm -hmm. But ear lids never evolved. Mm -hmm. Not once in the fossil record do we have any evidence that a species evolved ear lids. That would be far too dangerous. Animals must listen to survive. But here in our modern world, we've kind of forgotten that and we've tuned out of what is happening around us because there are all these messages. Some of them are very simple yet still important, such as the consumption of fossil fuels and that booming crescendo of all the noise pollution everywhere, which is telling us about our excessive use of energy. But there are also messages that if we were to go to a quiet place sit down in the whole rainforest, for example, and simply be alone in the silence of nature, that our deeper ecology, that deep ability to listen, 
occurs. Mm-hmm. And what do we hear? Yeah, what do we hear? Let me ask you that question this way. Um, okay. Walk into the whole rainforest for me with your uh, ears. Walk mm-hmm. us in there with you by mm-hmm. sound. Okay. Well, the reality of today, where we're going to start at the O Visitor Center parking lot. So I get out of my car. All right. We'll still hear the pinging of its engine. We'll hear other cars and other visitors, and we'll hear the beep-beep of our modern world as people are locking their cars and the rustling of our artificial fabrics against our bodies. Some people will be chattering away on cell phones. But then the sound of my backpack goes over my shoulders, and we head off down the trail. And no more than 100 yards along these tall, tree-lined, ferned path with moss drapes that add sound deadening to the experience. We'll hear the call-off twitter of a winter wren, this very high, very high-pitched twittering sound that might be coming from a hundred feet away, and then we'll hear further away the sound of the whole river that drains the rainforest, Mm. echoing off the far side of the valley. And if we were taking this hike in the fall, we would hear the bugling of the Roosevelt elk, when up close is actually quite a guttural, um, adrenaline-filled assertion of what it means to be male and wild. But when you hear this experience from a couple of miles away, and that not that amazing when you're in a quiet place, your listening horizon extends for miles in every direction? Hmm. When you hear an elk call from miles away, it turns into a magic flute as the result of traveling through this place that has the same acoustics as a cathedral. And then 3.2 miles up the Ho River Trail, we arrive at the place that I'm trying to save, one square inch of silence, which is simply a moss-covered log with a stone on top, one square inch in size. And what do you what do you hear there when you're there in that square inch? Give me a moment, and I'm listening. I'm going to take a drink of when I'm at one square inch of silence. I hear the presence of everything. Nothing shouts importance. I hear myself, my mind, forget that it even needs to think. Words evaporate. My to-do list disappears. It'll be re-edited, and I'll find that that hundred list of things that is in my back pocket when I leave will be only worth about five. When I'm there at one square inch of silence, the trees remind me of miracles. 
They happen every day. And they have happened for millions of years. And how did I ever stop believing in it? <laughs> so And I have to, and I have to say mm-hmm. that what is even more profound than the experience of natural silence and rejuvenating myself on who I really am, because when you are not distracted by cell phones and email and television and all these interruptions at the workplace and now at the home. Myself is revealed. It's like nature discovery leads to self-discovery. And I know who I am and those, those questions that were nagging earlier and I thought were kind of confusing and complicated. I didn't know what I should do. <laughs> they're, they're obvious. You know, don't argue with my teenage daughter. Just love her. Just love her. There are answers in the silence. So then on the hike out, and often I actually hike to one square inch of silence with another person, and we agree not to talk while we're there at one square inch of silence. And often the hike in is a chattery experience coming from urban lives, etc. But the hike out is hardly talking at all. And if we talk, we hmm. always whisper. Hmm. Quiet is quieting. Hmm. You have said that... Um Silence, and you mean that silence you just described, mm-hmm. is an endangered mm-hmm. species. I mean, is it right? Oh, boy. <laughs> silence is uh, so endangered, we even need another word for it. Mm-hmm. Silence is on the verge of extinction. And first of all, places in nature that never have any noise pollution are already gone. The modern measure of silence is the noise-free interval. And now we might think the noise-free interval should be measured in hours for places that are very distant on the planet and even some places here that are isolated, such as Olympic National Park off in the northwest corner of Washington State. But if a place can have a noise-free interval of only 15 minutes or longer during daylight hours. It's added to the list that I've collected for 30 years called the list of the last great quiet places. (laughs) At last count, Mm -hmm. here in the United States, there were only 12. Mm -hmm. None of them are protected. And I I want to talk about... uh, the language of silence and sound. Mm-hmm. Natural silence is sometimes used when you talk about these natural silence, very few natural places, quiet. quiet places where natural mm-hmm. silence reigns over many miles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're not, as you said a minute ago, it's, you say this a lot, it's not absence, it's not a vacuum or an emptiness. It's this kind of silence is presence and it includes sound. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. It's not the ab- it it's can not the absence of lots. Yeah. 
It's, it's not the absence of sound. I, th I think uh, physicists will tell you that true silence does not exist. Mm -hmm. Not on planet Earth with an atmosphere and oceans that even transmits sound much further and more quickly than in the atmosphere. Uh, the whole Earth is vibrating. In fact, I'd love to talk about the Earth uh, in, just, in just a minute. Mm -hmm. But the whole Earth is vibrating. When I speak of silence, I often use it synonymously with quiet. I mean silence from modern life, silence from noise pollution, mm -hmm. silence mm -hmm. from all these sounds that have nothing to do with the natural acoustic system, which is busy communicating. Wildlife are as busy communicating as we are, but it's not just messages coming from wildlife, and I can name some that have been really transformative in my personal life. Um, but it's also the experience of place, mm. what it means to be in a place. You know, I kept thinking when I was reading you about a conversation I had with a physicist at one point who'd been really influenced by Goethe, who, mm -hmm. who, who talked about some things that physicists talk about, but from a more from the perspective of a poet, right? And mm -hmm. he, he, you know, mm -hmm. and it's kind of learning, remembering that light, that in fact, we don't see light except in terms of what it falls on. And, mm -hmm. I, and I was thinking about mm. the way you talk about silence is that it's, it's always something that's defined by the quality of silence as relative to the sounds that are around it and against it. Mm -hmm. Oh, uh, very much so. I'm in the process of going through and cataloging 30 years of work, having circled the globe three times, collecting these experience of silences. And I, and I have two folders in particular, beyond all those other folders that are labeled insects, birds, frogs, forests, <laughs> deserts, stuff like that. It's interesting you folders. do wind, right? I mean, you do yeah. you know, sounds you, you that know, we almost the, don't think of as sounds. Grass waving. Yeah. The, oh, grass wind. Oh, that is absolutely <laughs> gorgeous. And grass wind and, and pine wind. And, you know, we can go back to the writings of John Muir, which he turned me on to the fact that the, the tone, the pitch of the wind is a function of the length of the needle or the blade of grass. Mm. And so the, the shorter the, the needle on the pine, the higher the pitch, the longer, the lower the pitch. There are all, there are all kinds of uh, things like that. But the, the two folders where I collected, I have oh, over a hundred different recordings which are actually silent from places, and you cannot discern a sense of space, but you can discern a sense of tonal quality, that there is a fundamental frequency for each habitat. And then my quiet folder is a folder which is a, a step above that, hmm. where you cannot distinguish any activity, you can't hear a bird, a cricket, you can't hear a ripple on a lake, you can't hear any of the wind going through the pines, but you do have a sense of space. And each habitat also has a characteristic sense of space. And these are the fundamental, I, to relate this to music, these, these are the fundamental tones 
that everything else is built up upon so that when we listen to a place on planet Earth, we very quickly realize that Earth is a solar-powered jukebox. Right. I love that. I love that sentence. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's a solar-powered jukebox. We can go to the equator, listen to the Amazon, where we have maximum sunlight, maximum solar energy. The the solar panels, the leaves are harvesting that and cycling into the bioacoustic system. And and to my ears, that's a little too intense. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's a little bit too much action. And then we can jump up into Central America, and we can still feel and hear the intense solar energy, but it's beginning to wane, and we notice a really big difference when we start getting into the temperate latitudes, of which I particularly enjoy recording in, because it's not just about the sound, but it's about something that I call the poetics of space. Mm. So say some more about that. Yeah. Silence is really wonderful, isn't it, Krista? Mm, it is. You know, even even when we just let it exist, let it exist, so, it feeds our soul. Right. And, and I, I don't know if you were pointing at this when you talked about the poetics of space also, but silence in human spiritual traditions mm-hmm. is... Is a is an element, I mean, often the element of enlightenment, knowledge, self knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What if you if silence is the think tank of the soul? Is something you've said. Mm-hmm. I wonder. Very, very much so. What and do you, how, I, how, how I really do you understand came. that better? From well, how have you come to understand that? What does that mean when you say it? Silence is the think tank of the soul, and it's something that I arrived at indirectly because when I decided that my number one goal in life, and by the way, Chris, still is to become a better listener. You know, to think for a moment that I'm a good listener is a very dangerous thing to do. I just have to stay open to all the possibilities and be willing to be changed by what I've heard. But I've also found that modern literature, when I got out of graduate school and decided to become a better listener, my habit was to just absorb all the existing literature. But the, the modern literature is just so devoid of listening. And it's back in the 1800s that we find that authors are still listeners and they're writing for a listening audience. And Mark Twain is perhaps the most famous of these. Uh, Modern biographers have totally overlooked the fact that uh, he was a sonically turned-on listener by modern standards. We have to go to his autobiography to read that he couldn't remain in the room with a ticking clock. Hmm. Also, when he gave a reading and he toured the planet, basically, to give readings out of the adventures of Huckleberry Finn. He would not give a reading unless the programs were printed on noiseless paper. 
<laughs> which meant a high cloth content. Hmm. Why? Because for Mark Twain, silence was the think tank of the soul, essential to every person's development, transformation. And he uses silence brilliantly to transform his childhood lead characters into free-thinking adults. Hmm. For Huck, it happens on the Mississippi River. And for Tom, it happens in the cave. I remember having a conversation once with a rabbi who works with the spirituality of children. Mm -hmm. And she was talking about really practical things parents can do to nurture their children's inner lives. Mm -hmm. And one of them was, she said, just create silence give create spaces and times of silence because that as she i yeah. think we may have called it an endangered species it's it's something mm -hmm. you have to actively make happen in a modern family life right <laughs> i i i'm st i'm still laughing krista because i get so many comments when i give presentations and and lectures of people that come up to me afterwards and they say you know my child just doesn't listen. <laughs> right. right. When do they know? learn? And, and we're both parents, and, and we mm -hmm. know that feeling, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And it's not so much that children don't listen. We're all born listeners. And I always say, if there's one thing you want to do as an adult to become a better listener, and that's, you know, take a preschooler, someone who hasn't gone to school and been taught how to listen by focusing attention, which is actually controlled impairment, but a preschooler who's still taking in the whole world, hoist them onto your shoulders and go for a night walk. They'll tell you everything you need to know hmm. about becoming a better listener. And also, you know, when it comes to speaking with children... You know, they're such good listeners mm. that we they really know that we don't have a lot of worthwhile things to tell them. <laughs> We're busy going off someplace else when there's so much right in front of us, mm. so much happening right here. And if you have the good fortune of going for a walk up a nature trail with a child, the younger they are, the more pointless it seems to go any further because the miracles are right here. Right, right. Let's just sit down. Don't worry about the exercise or the goals, the, the expectations that right. you brought into the experience. Mm -hmm. And let's just really be here. Mm -hmm. So, and, you know, sorry. No, I, go on. I, and Trista, that is often the big challenge for adults when it comes to silence because we're so busy being someplace else that when we're in a silent place there are no distractions we finally do get to meet ourselves and that can be frightening mm -hmm. for a short while it can be frightening it's practically fear of the unknown <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just thinking back to a couple of minutes ago where you were quiet, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the truth is there's something scary about it. 
And it is that thing of you don't know what's going to happen next. And we're kind of trained to fill a void where we meet one. Okay. Now, when I was quiet, were you scared? Well, there were two of me in the room. There was the radio producer. <laughs> Going, oh, my God, well, what's happening now? Well, also, who was wondered, has the technology failed us? But because I, the part, the me, knew that I was, had, it was you on the other end and that that was intentional. Um, but it does get at, it, 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 mm. even it's a tiny, tiny slice of what you're getting at. I mean, the silence, when you create a space of silence, anything can mm. happen. Yeah, anything can happen. And isn't that beautiful? It's like the blank page to a writer. That page has immense potential at that point. It has its highest potential. We need to take time to honor that blank page. Or an artist that paints, look at the canvas. Mm -hmm. Imagine for a moment what it would be like all the future paintings of the world can exist right now at that moment on that canvas. It's just such an important opportunity. And silence is that. Silence for me is an opportunity just to feel everything around it. And I describe it because I take a moment of silence every day in my life that I don't try to fill with thoughts, that I turn everything off, and sometimes that even means going over to the master breaker switch on the wall <laughs> and, and clicking that. I, I take a moment just to be in my being. Just be in my being. And I know that other people might have other ways of saying it, but that's what sounds right to me. There's no purpose, but there's a great deal of joy. And from that joy, I'm reminded who I am. And from who I am, I'm then able to go out into the day. So I want to then kind of trace the silence back to the sound as, as human beings. Um, um, okay. Because... Um, you do distinguish, right? We've talked about silence is not an absence of sound. It's an absence of noise. And, mm -hmm. and that there's a lot of noise that we create, people create. But I, yeah. I wonder how you think about, about okay, now what... Okay, that deserves a pause there. Because <laughs> I just have to say, you know, that's totally understated the amount of noise okay. that exists in the world. I'm not wrong. I'm noise, just not saying it loudly enough. <laughs> Noise-induced hearing loss has become the number one occupational illness, mm -hmm. even above respiratory and skin disorders. Mm -hmm. Hearing loss in children has doubled in recent decades. We are exploding right now at this moment in this huge inferno fueled by fossil fuel. What I want to ask you, though, too, is as creatures among other creatures, um, you know, what sounds of ours are part of the soundscape? What did you use this phrase of the natural acoustic system, right? I mean, surely mm -hmm. much of mm -hmm. what we do is also 
natural acoustics. Um, oh yes, you know, and it interests oh, yes. me when I read when I looked at this do- documentary about you. Know you love mm-hmm. the sound of trains. Well, trains uh, yeah. are trains yeah, yeah, are yeah, yeah. inventions. Yeah. They're mechanical objects. So, so you know why I get it, criticized uh, about that for, well, from you people know, who don't like trains. But I, okay. you know, I say. You know, I don't have to argue uh-huh. about the contradictions in my life. I just know that I love trains, particularly steam engines. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the whistles. But it doesn't, it doesn't, yeah, and the whistle. Yeah. And it doesn't uh, mean that I don't also love silence. Yeah. But, 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 but tell me what the difference is. I'm saying intuitively I'm with you, and I think a lot of people love the sound of a train. But what is the difference between a train and the sound of a a car or the hum of an electric oh, generator. Tr- tr- tremendous. Well, the difference is the message. Okay. And we can we can do a lot of talking about messages, but we don't need to. Um, the the message of a car is simply that it's putting out noise. The car is going somewhere, and hopefully, if it's legal, at no point is it going to be emitting more than 95 uh, dBA of noise. Many cars aren't legal, motorcycles, nothing should be above 95 dBA. And it's just simple. You know, fuel is being burned, some person's going somewhere. That's really a message that doesn't deserve a lot of attention, but that message also covers up a lot of other messages, such as it's springtime, a bird is singing, calling for its mate also revealing its presence to potential predators, teaching us that love and risk are inseparable. We totally miss that message because a car is spinning on by. Or we a jet going overhead, which simply says, you know, I don't care about you down below. Even though I'm like spewing, dragging this cone of noise that is over 10 times the acoustic energy at ground zero above a national park, I don't care about you. We're just, you know, we're in, the, we're above the rest of you. Just keep on going. But a train, okay? Yeah. What's the difference? A train <laughs> is like here we go, and and then you know we can listen to a steam engine to tell the point. A train, first of all, steam trains. The engineer when he uses that horn the whistle with the pull thing, Mm -hmm. he's applying his own artistic sense, his own signature, the... He's, you know, his sense of timing. He is performing, okay? Hmm. And then as the train backs up, you hear the exertion, the force. It's going over the clicking of the rails. It tells you the age of the tracks. But most of all... Uh, when I listen to trains and their whistles from miles away, it's like a like a whale letting out a sonar beep, and the whole topography of the surrounding landscape is revealed to me in the many layers of the echo that come towards me. And I think to myself, oh, wow, I know exactly where I am. Mm-hmm. There's that place again, that sense of place. There's that place. Sound, sound, you know, listening is not about sound. One of the best listeners that I know is actually a deaf person. Listening is about place. 
don't listen. If you if you ever find yourself listening for a sound, mm-hmm. that's diagnostically a controlled impairment. All right? Simply listen to the place. And when you listen to the place, you take it all in, which is exactly what we're meant to do. So where does music figure into your this sensibility of yours? Well, well, I hear music coming from everywhere. Mm-hmm. And what I call music is basically defined as this. While I'm listening to it, do I want to dance? Right? <laughs> and when it's over, do I find myself kind of like humming it? Has it affected it? Myself, have I internalized it? Am I now living out those dance steps just in the way I interact with people or carry myself down the path? And I hear music coming from the land. I mm-hmm. Some of the most sublime symphonies have been hidden away in something as simple as a driftwood log. And I'd like to share with you the sound of the most musical beach in the world to my ears. It's called Rialto Beach. And in this experience, we'll start outside the log on the ocean and we'll hear the waves come up on the pebbled beach. And then as the waves retract, we'll hear those pebbles roll back and all those different notes are related to the size of those pebbles. And it's even the retraction, it's even louder than the wave advance. But the important thing, we're about to enter into a giant driftwood log. It's a Sitka spruce log, the same material that's used in the crafting of violins, and it has mm. a, a, a special property where that when it's excited, when the wood fibers are excited by acoustic energy, and this in this case it's the sound of the ocean itself, that the fibers actually vibrate. Mm. And inside, we get to listen to nature's largest violin. Do you have that to play? Are you okay? Yeah, we have it. Yeah, we have it. Okay. Yep, you do. Um, great. That's wonderful. Um, so, okay. So here's something that occurred to me when I was thinking mm-hmm. of what you're that the 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 silence that in fact is a makes all the sound like gives is the is the is the element of the of of the sound of the of natural acoustic sound so i was thinking okay so i mean and you you use language you you speak of the ocean as a drum and right a, a, a mm-hmm. forest with cathedral like acoustics mm-hmm. so i mean human mm-hmm. beings have a capacity to to recreate and and even add to those mm-hmm. that that music that is natural to mm-hmm. nature and um i was wondering so Obviously, there's music and there's music. I get that. But, um, uh, you know, when we... <laughs> and that's the discussion we're not going to resolve here. But no, when, we are going <laughs> When we, when we um, human beings, when we put on music mm, in the background of life, right, as a soundtrack to a place or a time mm-hmm. or an experience, you know, maybe some, sometimes are we not just recreating what happens in nature where the birds are singing and the grass is blowing and, and there's that. Oh, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. I, I hear all the time in folk music in particular when I travel to third world countries and I've been uh, recording um, 
in Sri Lanka, for example, and spent a couple of weeks just recording the remote places there and the beautiful music that comes through the night and all the insects and frogs weaving deep textures. Mm -hmm. And then I listen to the folk music and I hear the same thing all over again. Our music is just a reflection of who we are, and who we are is what we hear. So I hear a lot of modern music as being the urban environment, the noise Mm -hmm. just being transformed. Mm -hmm. But also I hear in country music, uh, Hank Williams, for example, I had a funny event happen to me in 1990 when I was traveling across country and I got into the Midwest and I, I, uh, you know, set up my microphone system and, um, and then I pushed record, but I was listening to Hank Williams <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, darn, some rodent last night must have like chewed through my microphone cable and created a ground, turned it into a radio antenna. Okay, so I, I spent 15 minutes trying to debug what the problem was, and I couldn't find it. And I also noticed that Hank Williams was still playing. So then I turned up the gain even further, and it was just the cooing of the doves and the, di- the <laughs> distant prairie and the trees. It was the sound of the place itself. And I imagine for a moment that Hank Williams, when he was a young child, sleeping with his bedroom window open, that all the tunes that the world was going to love when he became an instant success were being written Hmm. right then and there. Hmm. That's lovely. Let's talk about listening. And we've been talking about listening. And let's talk about listening between human beings. Um, Mm. Okay. Um, which yeah, anyway, <laughs> that yeah. much more complex. Um, you you mentioned a minute ago uh, the best listener you know is a is a person who's deaf, and I wonder if that would be mm-hmm. your fiance who um, um, is he- yeah. is hearing impaired. Is that right? And then you've mm-hmm. you've said that yeah, she's a she's, great listener. She's she's deaf, and I I have to point out that uh, listening is always a challenge. Rebecca is no longer my fiancé. Okay. Um, uh, but it reached a, a natural conclusion. We did discover how different our worlds really were. It was a great education for me and also for her. I think I have to just tell you, Krista, that you know the way love normally evolves is that love reveals. Love goes on re- beyond revealing, but then reveals something greater. And in our case, she didn't know that the sound of a stream sounded different from the sound of the ocean or even the sound of rain because she only knew about the hearing world from what the hearing world had told her. And we simply Mm. take it all for granted and don't talk about it. Well, one night she got to thinking about this and she couldn't sleep. And so she went to the couch and opened up my book, One Square Inch of Silence, and began to read deeper into a world that she was just beginning to discover. 
And when she came to bed, I sensed, you know how, in that silence, you can sense something and know right, it. Right, right. And so I reached over, and I normally hold have a digital handheld recorder to take notes at night. I know I can't wake up a deaf person if I'm taking notes. Mm. And I, I, on instinct, I knew she was about to tell me something, and so I pushed record. Yeah, and we have, and we can we can yeah. insert Rebecca. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I that's listen. In the I finals. actually listened to that just before I came in. I had a, yeah. um, Nancy had sent yeah. it to me, and uh, yeah, it's it's amazing. I was also thinking she has cochlear implants. Is that right? Is that how you she say? has now gone bilateral? Uh, she uh, has cochlear implants, uh-huh. and she now can understand the spoken word very well, but has lost all ability to hear music, mm. which is very unfortunate. There's a documentary. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called Here and Now, but Here is H-E-A-R. And it's okay. it's done by a documentary filmmaker who, who was raised by two deaf parents hmm. who... Uh, I believe they'd both been deaf all of their lives. And then very late in their lives, this technology became possible, these cochlear implants. And um, Mm -hmm. it was a big journey for them to do it. But, I mean, there's obviously a lot to it. But one of the things that just I remember so well is that it it worked quite well for the father. But, Mm -hmm. But after, and of course it was amazing to hear after never hearing and being alive for 60, 70 years. But then they would often, he would often turn it off <laughs> um, oh, yeah. because oh, yeah. the noise was too much. I mean, getting to, to right. what you know, what he, he knew silence. Right. And, and so sure. <laughs> he was also then able to make the choice for silence, which he did, which, yeah. I, which puzzled the hearing people around him who had always felt like this oh, would be the, oh, yeah. right? Was, yeah. Rebecca always turns her cochlear implants off in, unless a person is in the room because mm-hmm. she enjoys the silence. And our world has become so filled with noise pollution, she, she just says, I can't understand how you can handle it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, I can't. Um, and so I'm fortunate enough that I live close enough to the whole valley that I can go back and recharge on the quiet. A lot of people say, hey, what's the big deal? Noise can't kill you. And I always remind them, yeah, that's right. It'll only drive you crazy and wish you were dead. I'd like to talk a little bit about your relationship with technology because, um, we can trace a lot of this problem to technology. On the other okay. hand, technology is what allows you to record these soundscapes, even to record silence. Oh, I, I, yes, I work a lot with technology, but I limit my technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, Krista, uh, unlike most people, I limit my use of cell phone. I do not listen to the radio. I'm not going to hear this broadcast. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't watch television. I don't read newspapers or magazines. I do research topics, which I'm expected to be informed on and I give presentations about. But I limit um, my exposure through technology because technology, at least in our capitalistic system, is not about information. 
you know, it's about entertainment. It's all competing. It's all prepared. It has uh, an audience, an audience that's being marketed to. If I want information, I simply listen to where I am. <laughs> I get my information face to face by my neighbors. I go out. I listen to a willy wag tail. I drop a hydrophone. I listen to the whales. Mm. I mean, so I have. To, I, I am a radio fanatic, but otherwise, I find that a completely. <laughs> I, otherwise, I find oh, that an enviable vision. However, one of the things I yeah. like most about your book are your yeah. exchanges with your teenage daughter. Uh, be- Abby, because there's the tension, right? There's treasure. the rub. <laughs> I know. And Ab- I got to tell you about Abby. I'm so proud of her because she's going to go with me down to the Amazon rainforest mm. uh, with my son. We have a chance to really go deep, far in, visit a native tribe that's invited us because I'm hoping to document the sounds, the pristine sounds of the Amazon for them so that they can help uh, raise money to uh, protect their reserve. Well, the first thing I I said, hey, Abby, I called her up. Hey, I'm about ready to buy our airfare tickets, right? Mm -hmm. I need to know if you're really in. And you know, Abby, you're an arachnophobic. And she goes, yeah, Dad, I know. Over 50,000 known species of spiders. (laughs) But here's my question. Will will she be bringing her iPod? (laughs) You know, we need a security check, don't we? <laughs> I am going to go through her stuff We're, the night before we fly out. But here, and by the way, she, she did get a tarantula oh, to get gosh. over the arachnophobia. Well, Isn't pretty, that funny? Yeah, well, her roommate now is her greatest solution. fear. <laughs> so she's not going to bring an iPod. Mm-hmm. I actually, before the book was published, the publisher... As Simon and Schuster said, you know, your daughter really, you sure you want to quote this conversation about the banter and the everything that and goes back and forth? And her iPod is too forth. loud, right. And the whole thing, the funny thing, yeah, the v, I can't hear you, Dad. Your mm-hmm. V-dub is too loud. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's hysterical, mm-hmm. isn't it? Well, uh, yeah, I asked her because by the time the book was published, she was two years older. And I said, so, Abby— is it okay if this gets published? And she goes, Dad, I was just a 16-year-old. Right. And, you know, I was really proud of her because she was. And I was just a dad of a 16-year-old. But, you know, I want to I ask you... I want to ask you this question positively, too. Um, you talked a minute okay. ago about how the music we make and, and the sounds we make reflect the world we live in and that a lot of music mm-hmm. now is reflects the mm-hmm. urban tempo and noise level and all that but i think my child my ch- my children challenge me mm-hmm. also to, you know beyond my sense of what is good i mean you know i see my son i see him reciting rap music that's just not something i would ever know what to do with and i see i, I went as mm-hmm. he is working with it i see it as poetry that goes all the way through his body Mm-hmm. I just wonder mm-hmm. if you, if your children or, you know, just, you know, your experiences um, as you as you grow older, um, if, if there are insights that are new to you um, as you continue to listen even to our culture, um, if your mm-hmm. sense of our human soundscape and what, what, what might be positive or at least uh, 
edifying um, changes? Well, children of all ages and adults, too, make their choices based on their experience to a much less degree than what they're told. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's more important than ever that we do take those backpacking trips into wilderness areas, mm-hmm. that we do allow them to get to that through that first one or two days of sheer boredom, and then they make that adjustment. They feel their body coming into tune. That ringing of the ears ceases to exist. They meet an unexpected wildlife just right there Mm -hmm. on their shoulder practically, right? They notice things at night. They overcome how there are no street lights and things really do get dark and spooky at night and how they wake up safely and that there's a grander experience in nature. But most of all, their thoughts will empty out too. Mm-hmm. And so they'll have mm-hmm. that in their experience. So both my kids, they listen to rap music, mm-hmm. and I don't restrict what they listen to or how they behave, but I do bring them along into the wilderness so that they have that to compare it to. Okay. And even to incorporate into their large sound, their soundscape of their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, you've made some pretty, st- you make some pretty stunning statements in your writing, you know, just to take this a little bit farther, that research shows that in noisy areas, people are less likely to help each other. Yes. And, and how do you explain that? Mm-hmm. The explanation really goes all the way to silence. When we can speak in silence, you can hear not just my words, but you can hear my tone. What I mean, even beyond the words, in fact, it's really not the words that are important. It's the tone, it's the overall message, the context. Mm -hmm. When we're in a noisy place in urban environments, And the higher the ambient noise level in urban environments, the higher the crime rate, we become isolated and we exhibit antisocial behavior because we are cut off from a level of intimacy with each other Hmm. and we're less in touch with who we really are. We can come up with these quick answers of, oh, that's not really happening. Because after all, we're busy not listening to this, not seeing that, not doing that. We aren't opening up and being where we are. We're limiting our overstimulated exposure. And so in a crime area, when a crime is actively taking place, we just toss that into the limit pile and move on. I think this is really interesting what you're pointing out again that... um that intimacy is also related to uh, being able to listen even at a very primal level, right? Not that, not not even that we're in conversation, but that we can hear. That are that that we are, that we are listening creatures, and that that somehow is 
is destroyed or mm-hmm. interfered with in a very, very noisy environment? Mm-hmm. Listening, I, I would like to talk for a moment about the importance of listening and the importance of the environment of which we attempt to listen in. For all animal life, in these higher vertebrates, listening is our sense of security. That's why we don't have ear lids. Even while we're asleep, we take it all in. That's why alarm clocks work, right? Mm-hmm. And when we're in a relatively quiet place, we can hear that all the information is in. So quiet places generally tend to be secure places. So they calm and us, they calm in, our nervous systems. They, they, they calm us. We know mm-hmm. that we know all the information is in. The mm-hmm. information isn't being jammed. This happens in nature when a deer, for example, has to drink out of a creek and then the noise of the creek blocks its ability to make surveillance. So it tries to compensate quickly with, with glances with its eyes and then it drinks and then it moves back into a quiet place so it can continue to be secure. And isn't it amazing that our concert halls, our churches, places like that, they're quiet places. Mm -hmm. They're places where we can feel secure, secure enough that we can open up and be receptive and truly listen. And when we're truly listening, we also have to anticipate that we might become changed by what we've heard. Mm-hmm. This is such an important point you make as a professional listener, and it's something I know, too, that real listening is, a, is about being vulnerable. But... Yes. Right? Yeah. And, but, it, I mean, I don't mm-hmm. even know that I know how to explain it. I mean, how... how okay. How would you, ex- how would you explain mm-hmm. that? Mm-hmm. Well, when you really listen, when you really keep your mind open and listening to another person, and by the way, I highly recommend that if a person wants to increase their ability to understand another person, that they start out listening to nature because you're totally uninvested in the outcome of nature. You can just take it all in. All the expressions. And isn't it wonderful that when a bird sings that we do hear it as music? The bird doesn't sing for our benefit. So there's a lot of joy in that listening. And when we become better listeners to nature, we also become better listeners to each other so that when another person is speaking with you, you don't have to search for what you want them to say. You can, you know, dare to risk what they really are trying say and you know ask them too mm-hmm. is this really what you're saying and feel your own emotional response as they talk about mm-hmm. risky subjects like how it is being a parent in the world that it is today mm-hmm. but, you know it actually comes back to that also as you said, churches, music halls are quite they're safe spaces. Mm-hmm. And and the, the the problem with if if we're not as just again as human beings biologically, if we're not if we don't feel safe, which 
for you is is also about sound, being able to listen physically. Mm. Mm-hmm. Then we can't be. Then we we literally cannot be vulnerable. So I, mean, I, I don't know. I don't right. even know what connections I'm drawing here, except that it makes sense somehow. Well, the connection that I'm hearing is that you're drawing a relationship between listening, between silence, between being yourself, growth, spiritual growth. All these things are coming together and are important. I, I, I have to say one... I have to point one thing out mm-hmm. that's really important coming up here. And we're headed for the seventh anniversary of One Square Inch of Silence, uh, this place that I'm trying to save right. at Olympic National Park from all noise pollution. And in my book, I write that this is just as important as endangered species preservation, habitat protection, issues like global warming. And a lot of people have criticized that. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. Wait a minute. Well, how, do, how does this really measure up? And it's very important to me that we do still preserve silence, that we still do preserve the opportunity to go into our national parks with children and have these experiences that will teach us to be better listeners and better communicators. Hmm. You know, it's kind of a corollary between the relationship that that we have with the natural world, the relationship that we have with each other. And we all know, I think, that a truly intimate relationship, that, that, a, that a, a, a quality of that is an ability to be companionably silent <laughs> together. <laughs> hmm. Yes, it's probably one of the highest compliment that you can mm-hmm. pay a loved one is just to be quiet, hmm. be content, rest in that comfort. Well, the importance of saving silence, I think, remains high on the list because when you're being asked, Krista, to make huge changes in your lifestyle, since you're tuned into radio and you hear all the time about in global environmental crises mm-hmm. everywhere, mm-hmm. and yet our children are going to be the ones, and their children are going to be the ones that are going to have to fix it. Yeah, this takes tremendous amount of resource, resource, and fortitude. Yeah, inner fortitude. Silence, right? Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Silence. There is not one place on planet Earth that has been set aside off-limits to noise pollution. We have set aside places off-limits to light pollution so we can still have a view of the heavenly stars. Oh, that's wonderful. But not one place set aside off-limits to noise pollution. And the only thing keeping us from saving silence is a single piece of paper. One law. One law that I hope will create a national system of quiet places in selected national parks by the year 2016, which is the centennial of our national parks system. And if we cannot agree and pass 
that legislation on a single piece of paper? How am I supposed to believe that we are going to save species, save habitat, reduce global warming, take care of all that other stuff? This is a test of fortitude and a very exciting time to be alive because I believe we're going to do it. In fact, it's a no-brainer. I was up the whole valley with a reporter writing an article for the Seattle Weekly, and I asked him after we had spent our hour at one square inch of silence. So I said, hey, Brian, so you think it's possible? And with a big glowing smile, he says, of course, (laughs) right? Of course. And that's what quiet does. It reveals what is possible and also what's right. And then I said, okay, Brian, now watch your feelings because you're going on. You're going back to Denver. You're going to be taking care of all these other things and interviewing people inside the office environment, not a quiet place. And pay attention to that feeling. So I actually think there's something building here in in the culture at large. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know. There was was an article just a couple of weeks ago in the New York Times by Pico Iyer, who's a... Oh, yes. You know, and did you see that? The Joy of Quiet. Yes. He's a a journalist, a a writer of books, um, an intellectual, and it... Uh, I mean, it, it, it was just the latest mm-hmm. thing I've seen. It's not the only thing. But oh, it was about he, people leading totally people leading it, very yeah he? yeah people leading yeah. very modern lives. You know, mm-hmm. it ends with him. He gave mm-hmm. a bunch of examples. It ends with him running into he he goes to a uh, a monastery, and he mm-hmm. he runs into somebody who works at MTV, <laughs> who brings his kids mm-hmm. to this yeah. to this yeah. quiet place, yeah. and yeah. he ends it by saying. Pico Ayer ends it by saying, the child of tomorrow, I realized, may actually be ahead of us in terms of sensing not what's new, but what's essential. And he's talking about yes. quiet. Yes. Or, and quiet and as the element of, just like what you said, of discerning what is essential. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's why it's so exciting to be alive today, hmm. is because we are making these choices. Rather than living a life of assumptions, where quiet's not important. Not too long ago, it was assumed that eh, clean water's not important, you know, but now it is, and we're cleaning that up. That, oh, you know, seeing the stars is not that important, but we realize it is. We're cleaning that up. We have our dark sky night program. And now I think we're realizing quiet is important, and we need silence. That silence is not a luxury, but it's essential. It's essential to our quality of life and being able just to think straight. And you're talking about um, restoring our that in proportion to um, the natural world. And, and, and this also makes me think about something that I trace, which is how our ancient spiritual traditions, you know, gain a new kind of relevance. Parts of them do in this ultra-modern world, because also, I mean, Pico Ayer went to a monastery. I mean, you know, there are religious spaces are some of those last places that are reserved for quiet, and it's been very Mm countercultural, but maybe less so again. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Well, recently it's been discovered 
that cave paintings in, in France, for example, that show the staggered images of bison and other animals of the hunt, uh, that they, those paintings occur in acoustically unique environments within the cave. Mm. And it's believed that by listening and listening to their echoes, that it was possible to commune with the spiritual world. Oh, interesting. But you have brought up something really important to me, and that is about our ancient past. Mm-hmm. When I go to a quiet place, it's as if I get to meet my ancestors. I get to ask questions that I didn't even know existed. I get to challenge assumptions. And one of the major assumptions is that the human ear is tuned to hear the human voice. Hmm. Yeah. And if that were true, that's, that's an assumption that audiologists, scientists who study human hearing have believed for a long time that our ears evolved to hear the human voice. But if, <laughs> if, yeah, I know. but if that were true, we'd be the first species on planet Earth, okay, mm-hmm. to have evolved so separate and protected from the rest of nature. Yeah, so my mean. natural curiosity was to look at the range of human hearing and these equal loudness contours, and we have a very discrete bandwidth of super sensitive hearing. And that's between 2.5 and 5 kilohertz in the resonant frequencies of the auditory canal. Is there something in our ancestors' environment that matches our peak hearing human sensitivity? Because most of what I'm saying right now, except for the S sounds and the high-pitched sounds, Mm -hmm. falls well below that range. And indeed, there's a perfect match. Bird song. <laughs> Bird song. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why? Why would it have any benefit to our ancestors to be able to hear faint bird song? Why would our ears possibly have evolved so that we could walk in the direction of faint bird song? And if I can tell you quickly, if you can imagine yourself as a member of a nomadic tribe, we've run low on provisions and now it's time for us to move on and find a new homeland. And we've reached a mountain ridge top and we have a view of two valleys. The choice we make between these two valleys may well determine whether we prosper or perish. From one valley, we hear nothing. There's no information. We take a moment to enjoy that silence. Know the importance of our decision, and then we look to the other valley and listen carefully. We can barely make out birdsong. And if the birds are singing, there's food, there's water, an extended favorable season to raise the young from the nest, birdsong is the primary indicator 
of habitats prosperous to humans. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? Mm. Mm -hmm. Now, when you're in a quiet place, what is the listening horizon? If you ask a person that lives in a city, they might take a wild guess and say, oh, you can listen for a mile, right? They know it's a trick question, so they're going to pick something (laughs) really big. You can listen for a mile. You ask somebody in the country, you can listen for three or four miles. And in my trip across country, when I asked Bill Wharf that question, he described to me the sounds he heard when he was growing up on a Montana homestead coming from 17 miles away. Hmm, really? Yes. Hmm. And I've heard sounds 20 miles away. If you do the math, that is the size of 1,276 square miles. Hmm. Do you know what it's like to listen to 1,256 square miles when the sun is rising and you can hear all of life raising his voice in this global concert, this dawn chorus, this planetary tune that continues to circle the planet and evolve in composition since the beginning of time? Let's listen. We begin now on the Australian outback, travel through Asia, Africa, Europe, and the Americas. One 24-hour cycle reduced to a little over a minute. And there we insert global sunrise. You, um, You use the word quiet and quieting and I I just want to ask you kind of as we draw to a close um, I mean I know you've been speaking to this the entire time but if I ask you um, what is the inner effect that the quiet and quieting have on you or have had on you over time how would you how would you talk about that <laughs> in a word yeah you have two minutes sanity <laughs> I need it. Okay, now I tell you how I prepared for this interview. Okay. Because, you know, I've spent 30 years developing my dream job of finding the most distant places on planet Earth removed from people (laughs) all by myself to listen to nature. And then in my efforts to preserve quiet places... The exact opposite is happening. (laughs) I'm going into downtown places, Hmm. traveling through noisy, busy interstates and ferries, and then, thankfully, I do get to come to rest here in a quiet studio. You know, that's a short-term solution. But to prepare for this interview, I really needed to be real get centered, Mm -hmm. feel good, find my voice. And there's only one way to do that for me that I know of, and that's simply to be quiet. No thinking involved. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably your last word there. I want to um, ask behind the glass if people have, um, if there are other questions. Do you want to ask him about? About Fritz? Fritz. Yes. 
Chris. Oh, Fritz. Fritz, Chris, who is our master Fritz. of sound, uh-huh. would like to know oh, yeah. about Fritz. Oh, yeah. Well, Fritz is my business partner. He actually started out being my listening master. Um, Fritz is a dummy head microphone system. I know that sounds insulting, but it's basically a microphone system uh, shaped like a human head with outer ears, two microphones placed on the inside, and it records a place the same way that you would listen to it if you were there in person, so that when I play back these recordings to headphone listeners, they have this hallucinogenic impression that, oh my God, they're really there, <laughs> you know, right, right in the middle of everything that's happening. And that's why Fritz was such an important master for me, because even though Fritz is a dummy head, my big problem in being uh, it not being a listener and wanting to become a better listener is that I had a brain. A brain that was telling me this was important to listen to, this is not important to Fritz listen to. Fritz doesn't have that disability. No, he doesn't. So uh-huh. as soon as I plug into Fritz, <laughs> I become a true listener. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a true listener. And, and Fritz and I have been together for 30 years. Yeah, yeah 30 years in, in, uh, in, in a few months. Sure, we've gone around the world three times, and we can even get more carried away. Fritz has a partner. <laughs> Helga. Oh, no. I, I'm not sure yeah. I want to know they, about that. That's a little yeah, you don't want to go there? No. No, but they have the perfect marriage. <laughs> okay. They have the perfect I'm marriage. Sure, they do. <laughs> yeah, they listen to everything that's said and never have a bad word to say. <laughs> now, uh, can we. Oh. Just because um, we have we have a few minutes here. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Oh, they, yes. I know. We and, just, yeah. and we we have just a couple minutes. Mm-hmm. I know. Mm-hmm. We're, we're wrapping it up mm-hmm. real soon. Mm-hmm. But sometimes there's something in the silence that we just have to let exist, and we can. We don't even have to put it into words. And for everyone that's out there. I really encourage, whether you have to put it on your calendar or you can do it right now, just take, roll up the windows, whatever you need to do to get things as quiet as you can, and there's nothing you're supposed to think. Just be. Just be in your being. Because the answers, they're there. Okay, Gordon, this is great. Thank you so much. Now, you have a bunch of nature sounds. Yeah, we have. Okay, and we, okay the whales. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I like the whales. I like the whales. They're one of my favorites because they're misbehaving. I really envy them <laughs> and their vocal expressions. They're, they're teaching me how to be more expressive and less uptight in interviews. Yes, and sorry. And the Pacific Wren. Oh, sorry. Oh. oh, I'm hearing a question behind the glass. Oh. Mhm. Mhm. Oh, the wren. Mhm. 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 Okay. Okay. 
Sorry, I don't think Gordon. I'm. They're talking to me in my headphones. So I don't think you can hear them. But we're. Um, no. We may be reaching out for a little bit more detail about the wren or something like that, depending on the mm-hmm. sound we use and how we produce it. But I know you'll. Okay. And I, and I have one sentence to say. Okay. Okay. In case you decide. The sound you find can happen in so many unexpected places. All you have to do is just get down, get close, and listen. Listen to this recording of snow melting. This is an unedited recording of snow melting. And when you listen to it, oh my God, get ready to dance because it's like totally reggae, let the dreads grow. (laughs) Hey, let me ask you just one quick question. We only have like two minutes. Um, All right. You quote quote Heidegger saying listening is worship. True listening is worship. Yeah. What does that mean to you? True listening is worship. True listening. True listening is worship. Because you simply be still. Be quiet. Be receptive. Be present. What more is there to say? <laughs> um, this is such a pleasure. It was such a pleasure getting into your reading, your writing, and learning more about what you do. And you know, we've we've been we've had you on our list for a long time, and I'm just so well, glad we made it happen. And that, and that you that well, you've moved through all that noise to get here it means a lot. I did. I know. It means and more I'm, now that I've interviewed. Me out. I don't want to get out there. <laughs> I don't 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 make me go. <laughs> um, yeah. Nope. So we'll we we'll. Um, we may have some questions, and we'll we'll let you know what's happening when we're okay. going to put this on the air, and we're really excited. Yeah. Well, well, thanks a lot. I really appreciate. It. I I read your bio online. You know, I really feel privileged to have someone with your intelligence speak to a man that basically everything I know I learned in the woods. <laughs> so, all right. Thanks well, a lot. Okay. Thank you. See Take you, care. Bye bye. Bye bye.